I hope that you've already been blessed by service and by worship that as we come before the Lord, if you would turn to Nahum chapter 2. As a reminder, last week we started this book, the third of four minor prophets that we've been looking at this fall, and we're reminded that at least for the book of Nahum, it is a sequel in many ways to the book of Jonah. If you'll remember, God sent the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to tell them, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, that destruction is coming. And Assyria had done plenty. They were a warmongering, horrible people that desired not just to uh, destroy and, and conquer, but they desired to torture and to humiliate and to wipe people off the face of the earth. They hear this warning of Jonah, and they do something remarkable. From the least to the greatest, the people of Nineveh repent. They, they get on their knees, and they pray to God that he would have mercy upon them. And they stop doing the things that they are doing, and God has mercy. He has grace upon them, and he does not destroy. He rather forgives. However, that does not last. Their repentance does not last. The book of Nahum is written roughly a hundred years after Jonah, and at this point, the people of Nineveh have turned back towards their evil ways. They've turned their attention back towards doing what they had done beforehand in the war and the conquering and the, the torture. And Nahum speaks to the people of Judah about Nineveh because the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, God's people, were in constant fear of the Assyrians. And Nahum preaches this. He, he does this prophecy by the, mouth, by the word of God to say the time of your enemy is coming to an end. Your time of fear is coming to an end. And he spends the and it was, a, it was a message of peace. And we, we remember last week that it's much like the message that the angels gave some 2,000 years ago when they declared a message of peace, not just to a specific nation, but to the whole world, that a Savior has come. Nahum spends the rest of this book, these last two chapters, giving a rather graphic description of not a message of peace, but rather a message of destruction to Nineveh, to tell them what is coming. And even in this, even in this, there's God's mercy. It would be another 10 to 15 years before the words of Nahum would come true. They had time to repent, and they refused. But God gives warning. He gives opportunity. He gives grace and mercy if we will receive it. Unfortunately, for Nineveh and their people, they did not. This time, they turned a blind eye. They stopped up their ears, and they continued on their path. And the Lord followed through with his words. If only they would have listened. If you would, please stand with me as we read Nahum chapter 2. We're going to be reading all 13 verses, and so if in the middle of this you need to have a seat, we understand. But let's honor the reading of God's word together this morning. 
the scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped and she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we come off of a week of thanksgiving. Lord, where we are reminded of the great blessings, the many graces and mercies that you have given towards us. We're reminded of your forgiveness and of your salvation. We're reminded of our families and our church family. We're reminded of the great many promises that you have made and the assurance of those things. Father, we're also reminded what you've saved us from. Father, I pray this morning as we look at a hard passage, Father, that you would open our ears to listen well that you would tune our attention towards you, Lord, that our thoughts would not wander, but that they would be held captive by your word. Father, that you would change us this morning. Lord, that we would go forth from this place proclaiming who you are and what you have done. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As we said in the opening, the Assyrians and their capital, Nineveh, were a place of destruction, certainly. From them came horrible things as they conquested around the known world of the time, as they conquered kingdom after kingdom, and again, not just for the sake of conquering, but for the sake of totally destroying everything in their path. This is why there's a picture of lions here in chapter 2. The Assyrians themselves described themselves as lions. They considered themselves the alpha prey or the alpha predator of the world. It was in their art. It was in their writings, everything around them. And they were destructive. 
You see what it says there with, in, at the end of the chapter that the lion uh, was tearing flesh for his cubs, that he was strangling his prey. These are not picture things. And if you've ever watched National Geographic, you know lions don't make pretty killings, right? It's not something that everybody wants to watch. In fact, Melissa just walked out so I can tell this. She tells me, if we're watching National Geographic and something like that's supposed to happen, she's like, tell me when it's over right? It's a horrible thing. It's a ruthless thing, and that's these people. And God has shown patience with them. He has shown grace towards them. He has sent them Jonah. He's sending them Nahum. He's sending them, he's given them decade upon decade upon decade to ask for forgiveness, to turn. And at some point, God's justice, his righteousness, his holiness says, enough. Enough is enough. And so Nahum begins to describe the judgment, the judgment day for Nineveh, the judgment day for the Assyrian people. We see at the end of the passage, the Lord declare, behold, I am against you. It's one thing for a human being to say, I am your enemy. Surely that's not any fun. And depending on the size of the person, the influence of the person, the power of the person, sometimes it's scarier than others. But when the God of the universe, the God who has created all things, who is capable of all things, says, I am against you, that is a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing. And certainly as we look at chapter 2 and then as we get into chapter 3 next week, there's some hard things to read. There's some hard things to read. Some hard things to think about. For the city of Nineveh in chapter 2, we see peace turned into chaos. The city of Nineveh up until this point was a beautiful place. They had advanced technology for their days of how to use aqueducts and how to gather water. And so they had gardens and they even had a small zoo and they had glorious temples to fake gods and they had wonderful palaces and tall walls. It was a place of peace for them. It was a place of, of comfort for them. And yet the Lord says, I am against you. And on the day of judgment, we see that peace, whoops, sorry, we see that peace turn to chaos. Verse 2 says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. His chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. Their peace has been turned into chaos. Unfortunately, tragically, we saw a picture of this about six weeks ago. It was all over our news feeds. It was all over everything. A picture of this kind of chaos, of this kind of violence. It was the work of, of evil. This is a work of judgment. Their peace turns to chaos. There's violence everywhere. There's burning homes everywhere. Soldiers, chariots running through the streets, seeking those that they can destroy. Their security had turned to vulnerability. 
going back to verse 5, he says, he remembers his officers. They stumble as these go. These men who had once led such a horrible army, such a, such a powerful army, now they are weak in the knees. It says, they hasten to the wall, but the siege tower is set up. They go to that, that fortress, that protective barrier that should have been their security, and yet what they see is the siege tower ready to overcome it. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. All the things that they had trusted in, all the power that they had accumulated, their army, their walls, their gates, all of it means nothing. Because the Lord is against them. Their peace turns to chaos, their security to vulnerability, their wealth to poverty. Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. The plunder, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or wealth of all precious things. The description here of the water running from the pool reminded me this week, and it's kind of a humorous illustration in a non-humorous, in a non-humorous sermon, but kind of like when you have that, that pool that blow-up pool for little kids, and you fill it with water, and they're having a great time, but eventually the inevitable happens, right? We all know that the, the outcome of the pool, that eventually it gets a hole, usually because a child jumps on it, okay? But there is gonna, there's going to be a time when there's a hole, or when the, the pool begins to deflate, and all of the water begins to spill out of the pool, and all of the kids are going, oh no, the water, the water, bring it back. There's no bringing it back. I told you not to jump on it. Right? But the water is flowing out of it. And that's the Assyrians right now. They're watching their city be destroyed. They're watching the walls crumble. They're watching their homes destroyed. They're watching all of this wealth that they had accumulated through violence slip through their fingers. And they're like, make it stop. Make it stop. And it won't. Even... Even for a people that had done evil things, this is a hard thing to think about. It's a hard thing to think about. Peace to chaos, security to vulnerability, wealth to poverty, strength to weakness. We took a look at this just a second ago, but it says, Desolation, desolation, the ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is on all the loins, all faces grow pale. That doesn't need much explanation. Verse 11, though, says, Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where, lion, the, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, where none disturbed. The lion tore enough of, for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Again, the Assyrians were a people that described themselves as lions. Out to seek and destroy, to conquer all that they saw. They saw their strength in themselves. And God rips it away. He says, your lions are no more. Your chariots are no more. Your messengers are no more. 
See, the Assyrians used to send out individuals, and we actually see a picture of this in uh, Chronicles, but they would send out individuals to go and stand outside of towns and villages and cities that they were getting ready to destroy, and they would declare all the horrible things that they were going to do to the people inside when they won. When we come and when we win, not if we win, when we win, we're going to do all this stuff because we're Assyria and we're great. God says, your messengers aren't going to go anywhere anymore. Your time is over. The Lord is against them. Peace to chaos, security to vulnerability, wealth to poverty, strength to weakness. Quite literally, as you read chapter 2 and then as you read chapter 3, it is a picture of hell on earth. It's a hard thing to think about. But it's a picture of what happens when a people, when individuals reject a holy and righteous God, when they reject his offers of mercy and forgiveness, of grace and of life, a holy and just God eventually must say enough is enough. And if he is to be just, then sin, disobedience, must be punished. Jesus himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in Scripture. And he does not speak of it in glowing terms. He speaks of the anguish. Mark chapter 9, verse 42, starting in verse 42, he talks about the temptations that we all face and that we should all flee from sin. Every little ounce of it, we should flee from it. Why? He says in verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He would go on. He, he describes it in, in terms that are hard for us to understand. A fire that does not go out. As Jesus describes it, Oops. As Jesus describes it, horror, the horror of hell includes anguish. It's not torture, but it is punishment. Fire that doesn't end. Worms that eat and devour forever. It's a place of anguish. It's a place of darkness. Matthew 25 Says, Jesus says in, at the end of one of the parables, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's one thing for us to think about the anguish of hell, the torment of hell in the flames that do not burn, in, in worms that do not cease to consume, and in all of the other things that, that we ponder. It's another thing to remember that it's a place of darkness. A physical darkness. To not be able to see what's going on. To grope around for your bearings. And yet be in pain and agony the whole time. Anguish. Darkness. Hopelessness. Dante in his fictional work. Says that the gates of hell are marked with these words, 
Abandon hope, all ye who enter. Why is there hopelessness? Because in hell there is no, there is no escape. The offer of God for forgiveness, of mercy, of grace, is withdrawn at that point in a parable. And, and to a certain extent, we have to be careful with these parables of how much we, we take from them. But in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man finds himself in hell having rejected the things of God his whole life. And he cries out to Abraham, please give mercy. And Abraham's response is, it's not possible now. You made your decision. It's not possible now. The blessings of God, the presence of God, the beauty of God and His creation, all those things are withdrawn. It's a place of anguish, of darkness, of hopelessness, and it is eternal. Matthew 25, 46 and these, those that have rejected, those that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Word of God teaches that despite what we may think, humans live forever. When Christians typically talk about eternal life, we typically focus upon the good, right? If I were to say to you, eternal life is available, your mind would, for most of you, many of you, if not all of you, would go to heaven, to new creation, new earth, and the, all of the joys that are part of that, right? To thinking about living forever with no more disease, no more tears, no more goodbyes, with all of the saints that have gone before us and all the saints that will come after us into that glorious presence of God, to a perfect creation the way it was always meant to be. That's what we think of when we think of eternal life. But when we, when we get serious about looking at the Word of God, what we realize is that there's also eternal death. That the process, of, where the process of death never ends. It goes on and on and on. Anguish, darkness, hopelessness, forever. These are hard things to talk about. They're hard things to listen to. For most of my life, I sat in that chair on that side of these things. Hard things to listen to, to comprehend, to talk about, to look at. So why do we do it? Why does Jesus talk about hell? Why does the Word of God discuss it? There's many reasons, but two in particular stand out. One, it's a word of warning. Nahum gives this word of warning. Jonah before him had given a word of warning. If you continue to go this direction, there are poor things ahead. There are horrible things ahead. Turn around. Stop. In the same way, we today, on this side of the cross, 
knowing of heaven and hell, how much more, knowing the anguish, the darkness, the hopelessness, the eternalness of hell, how much more should we sound the alarm, stop going that way, even to those that annoy us, even to those who maybe are a threat to us, maybe even to those that don't like us. We speak of these things that they may be a warning, but we also speak of them so that we may understand the glorious mercy and grace that God has given to us. We look at the ugliness of hell that we may have a deeper appreciation for the cross, that we may have a deeper understanding of our sin and what we've been saved from. You see, the prophet Isaiah in 52 describes it maybe in a way that we can understand. Isaiah, sorry, in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. For he, the coming Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was crushed for our iniquities. See with me here, friend, believer, stick with me. See here God's justice and God's mercy in the cross. That a holy, righteous, just God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And yet he also desires that none enter destruction. That all would be saved. And so how do these two things come together? They come together at the cross. They come together at the cross. God himself stepped into human history in the flesh, lived a perfect life, deserving of no consequence, so that he may get on that cross, that he may do for us what we deserved. You see, Jesus bore our anguish. He bore our anguish. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed our consequence. We need to be reminded from time to time that what Christ experienced on, he- on the cross was our hell. Look, look upon his beating, the flesh stripped away from his bones. Look upon the nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. Look upon the, cro- the crown of thro- thorns that was pushed into his mind, into his, into his skull. Look upon the cross and remember that he had to make a decision in every few seconds whether he wanted to avoid the pain of the nails or whether he wanted to breathe. 
he took my anguish. Jesus bore our darkness. Mark chapter 15. Mark describes the crucifixion and he says this. Sorry. He says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Lema, Shabbatheth, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our darkness. The sixth hour, by the way, would have been roughly noon. And the sun fails. Even upon the cross, he cannot enjoy the warmth of the sun. He bore our anguish. He bore our darkness. He bore our hopelessness for the first time ever in eternity and the only time ever in eternity. The Father and the Son are separate because the sin of the world is poured out upon him and God cannot look. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He bore our anguish, our darkness, our hopelessness. He bore it all. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bore it all. All to him, I owe. When we look upon hell, we understand the depths of what Christ did on the cross. That he took what was rightfully mine, what was rightfully yours, and he took it upon himself so that he could offer a gift to us to say, you don't have to. That if you will ask me for forgiveness, if you will follow me, you can have true life abundantly. It's why, it's why we look upon the cross and we can sing praise. It's why we can come into this place and remember our salvation and be glad. As I thought about this passage and, and I was thinking about all of the pictures and all of the images and then thinking upon what God has done for me upon the cross and through the resurrection, I was reminded kind of in a, in a Christmas season sort of way, but I was reminded of those saints, Simeon and Anna. Luke chapter 2. The baby Jesus has been born, or sorry, chapter 4. The baby Jesus has been born, and the parents, Mary and Joseph, take Jesus to the temple as a baby that they may offer the, the customary sacrifices. Sorry, I was right, it was too. The customary sacrifices... And they're waiting on them as two remarkable individuals. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for a consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And, he, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Skipping over to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, friends, that we, yes, we would understand the horror of hell, that we would understand what it means for God to be against us, but that we would remember that when we put our faith and trust in him, that he is for us. That his salvation has been offered to us. That we have been saved from that outcome. That now we live life in joy and peace and abundance and contentment and fulfillment with praise and glory for the God Most High because we are his. Amen. He is our salvation. He is our fall or our rising. Even though Christ has done all of this, even though he has offered pardon, even though he has paid for sins, even though he has shown love and grace and mercy, there are some who will still reject it. There are some that will still say, I can do it my way better. Simeon says, he will be the fall and the rise of many. The fall for those that reject him, who say, I don't need you, I don't want you who choose instead the wrath of God and the rising of those who call him his and who he calls his own. He is our salvation. He is our fall and our rising. He is our thanks, our praise, and our proclamation. He is our thanks, our praise, and our proclamation. Simeon sees Jesus and begins to declare thanksgiving. He begins to declare praise because he's seen the Savior. He has the same faith that you and I do. You and I stand on this side of the cross looking back and we praise. Simeon's faith looked forward to the cross and the resurrection and he praises his words there, if you go back to the original language, the words there are like the words of a servant who has been told to stand on the high place, on the roof, or maybe on a hill, and look down the road and anticipate the coming of, an, of a VIP, of a, a very important guest. And Simeon's words here are the words of a, of a servant who has done that well and who invites the guest in and announces his presence and is overjoyed. His shift is over. He says, now I can depart in peace. He is thanks. He is praise. He is our proclamation. Look at what Anna does. I love this. It says that she, having lived with her husband seven years, 
from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, so the language here is a little weird in the original. We, at the minimum, Anna was 84. At the minimum. At the maximum, she was quite a bit older than that depending on when the whole marriage widow thing began. But let look at what happens. She sees this baby, and she starts running around the temple. He's here, he's here, he's here. My senior saints don't tell me you can't proclaim. He's here. If you're 84 years and older, run around. He's here, he's here, he's here. <laughs> Think about that picture. It's an amazing picture. It's a glorious picture because she is so excited because she knows what we've been saved from. How much more then do we standing on the other side of the cross with the resurrection behind us as our assurance, do we go out into a world? Do we go out to friends, to neighbors, to family members, to acquaintances, to those on the other side of the tracks to give a word of warning? Stop going that direction. We know something better. We have a Savior. You have a Savior. Glory be to God. Brothers and sisters, may he be our thanksgiving, our praise, and our proclamation. May we understand what we have been saved for, and may we rejoice in what we have been given through the cross. Friend, if you are here, and you have no relationship with him, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this message, this good news that Jesus has paid it all for you. Maybe you grew up in church and you've, you've heard it over and over again and you've just never made that decision. You've never really walked with him. You've never really made that commitment that I'm gonna follow him day in and day out. Instead, you've been living it on your own, doing the best you can today. Today, will you open your ears and open your heart and hear the message that God proclaims that you're going the wrong way, but if you will come to him, if you will ask for forgiveness, if you will commit to him, that you can have life and life eternal. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. A good and right response is for us to jump to our feet and sing of the wondrous, wondrous things that God has done. A right response is for us to come to the altar and say, Lord, thank you. To come to the altar and say, forgive me for how I've forgotten that. Maybe some of us have, have just lost sight of what we've been saved from. And today we just need to say, Lord, forgive me for losing sight of that. Let me, help me to follow you again. For some of you, maybe you need to say that for the first time. Lord, forgive me. I want to follow you. If, you. if that's you today, then tell somebody. Come grab me, but don't wait. Tell somebody. The first step of believing in him and following him is letting other people know so that we can help you continue on that path. Let me pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we have looked at tough things today. Lord, it's hard to think about hell. It's hard to think about your judgment. But Father, 
we have seen glorious things this morning too, that you took it all. That you paid that price and now we can stand in peace with God. Knowing what is in front of us for all glory, for all your goodness. Well, I pray, Lord, give courage today to those that that need to respond with commitment. Give courage and strength today to those that need repentance. Father, give a voice and courage to those, to all of us who you have called to proclaim, to give thanks. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.